This is OTB AM. We also have Graham Hunter with us straight off the top because that's how big a morning it is. Graham, how are you? Listen, Joe, let's cut with the formalities. Yes, he's going to Villa. Right. <laughs> I mean, why not? Why not? Come on, he's a romantic. OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show, weekdays from 7.30 AM, only on OTB Sports Radio. Live 24-7 on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. Oh, the shape that will get. If you've got all the fans there. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I'm not playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladici, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! I suggest you shut up and show more football. Now then, welcome along to Team 33, the football happy hour here in Off The Ball. Coming up a little later on, I'll be bringing you some of my chat with Owen J. Brown from Pure Fitba as we dig our teeth into the Scottish season and the season that was up in the SBFL. We've also been chatting a little bit about football analytics, data analytics, how that has become the norm in football broadcasting, football analysing, and some of the weaknesses as well as some of the strengths of incorporating that into your day-to-day thinking about football. The full chat is available on podcast. If you want to check out that, it's available on otbsports.com or you can get it on the OTB Sports app as well. Before that, though, we are closing out the series we've been doing on football, politics and society and how all that ties together. And to do so, I am joined on the line by Michael Cole, a PhD student in the University of Tartu. Michael, you're very welcome along. Hi, thanks for having me. So I originally got in contact with you because you wrote a really good piece in the issue of the blizzard uh, about football and the far right in Georgia. But a little bit about yourself before we get into that, then how does an Englishman come to study a PhD in Estonia? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so I'm from the UK. I'm from York and um, I'm doing my PhD in political science here in Tartu in Estonia. Basically, my PhD is part of a bigger project called Fatigue, which is an EU project that looks at populism, illiberalism, and the far right throughout Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, my personal area of study is the far right in Georgia and Ukraine, and the the influence of Russia on the way they discuss uh, the situation in their countries. So I lived in Ukraine for a number of years and always been interested in this kind of area. And I just found some really interesting comparisons between the situation there and the situation in Georgia. So, yeah, long story short, that's how I ended up in uh, in Estonia. So the fatigue project, that's Eastern Europe and the rise of populism. That, that, that's quite interesting because the last couple of weeks, as I mentioned, I've been doing this sort of series on the rise of the far right and how football is tangled up on that quite a ways around and we we spoke about the football in former Yugoslavia and how the far right has infiltrated Croatian football and all of that tying together in terms of your studies how intense is the rise of the far right at the moment in Eastern Europe? I think it depends in which uh, country we we talk about and and of course each one is different Um, it also depends what we mean exactly by far right so if we look at radical rights, which are those who consider running for election as part of their their strategy to take power, then we can see that there are a lot of uh, radical right parties that have gained positions in in government in certain countries in the region. Um, I think it's kind of a similar trend that we see going on, not just in Eastern Europe, but also in in Western Europe. Um, From from even more extreme right uh, groups, particularly the ones I kind of look at in Georgia and Ukraine, it's not just about gaining political um, seats in parliament. It's also about the way that they influence the, the discourse or the conversations that go on in the societies. And again, unfortunately, we can see parallels between what's going on in, in the countries that I look at and places closer to, to the West, like in Britain and France and so on like, like that. So unfortunately, it's, it's a pretty common trend in many places in Europe at the moment. This might be too broad of a question, but... In terms of Eastern Europe, because a lot of the countries that I've spoken about so far have been former members of the Soviet Union or former, at least, communist-based countries. Is there anything in the political history that you've been looking at that 
has linked that with the rise of the current populace in uh, of say the radical right for example why are these former communist countries becoming more right-wing yeah i mean i think it, it's it's hard to generalize about everything but for instance uh, in poland where i spent the, the last uh, academic year in krakow uh, we have a, a right-wing radical party in power uh, law and justice and um i think one of the things is that if, if you're going to go extreme uh, in in that context, you can't go to the left because, um, you know, the, the the history of communism and so on. So communism is is kind of seen as the enemy, um, and I think this is a trend that's probably also evident in certain other countries in, in the region. But yeah, particularly in Poland, we see that that that's the only way that you're going to go if you're going to go extreme. Um, but yeah, it is hard to generalize in every case. And, and that's something that, that the fatigue projects in my own research will, will delve into in the future, I think. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah, there's obviously just because something is happening in Croatia doesn't mean it's the exact same thing that's happening in, in Serbia across the water. So in, in terms of this story in particular in Georgia and football and how that all got involved, when did you first start looking into this? So uh, as I mentioned, I... My, um, my PhD is in political science, so I was looking at, at politics in general in Georgia and the far right there. And so I started noticing um, this story maybe a couple of years ago um, when I saw a bunch of posts on, on far right Facebook groups um, attacking this, this football player, Guram Kasha, who's the, who was the captain of the Georgian national team. So being a football fan, I was always interested in this football angle. And it really kind of surprised me how someone who was the captain of the national team could be attacked for being unpatriotic. Uh, so as I, as I delved further into that, it, it developed into this interesting story that, that I wrote for the, the Blizzard. And in terms of, before we get into the actual football side of things and the Gurum Kasha story, can you give us a little bit of back, background in, to the society and life and the political structure of Georgia and um, like sort of the, the far right actors they're involved and almost what uh, the societal background is to all of this. Yeah, so Georgia, as, as you mentioned, is, is a former member of the Soviet Union, although that's already more than 30 years ago when, when they became independent. Um, and since becoming independent, probably the, the lead or the most powerful political actor in the country is the, the Georgian Orthodox Church. So the Georgian Orthodox Church has a lot of power over uh, the political atmosphere and also the societal discourses and it really promotes these traditional or so-called traditional values which include things like marriage being only between a man and a woman and is actually quite strongly against the LGBT community. So th these are things that go on within the society and are are, are kind of the, the norm if you like in that in that context. So when you have a very conservative society like that, and then you have a football player like Guram Kasha, who in this case was seen to be supporting LGBT rights, it, it became a bit of a clash of these traditional values and these so-called um, progressive uh, European values that this stood for. And so I, I found this personally very interesting intersection because Georgia as a country uh, is very much leaning towards uh, Western Europe, it wants to become a member of the European Union, I think even across uh, into the more radical right-wing sections of the political spectrum, they wouldn't want to go in a different, in a different direction. Um, but one of the key problems that, that seems to be uh, obstructing this is this, this discussion about what it means to be European and what it means to be part of the EU. Um, and so some of these more radical right-wing actors, and, and we talk about the church, but also there are political parties. There's a party in the parliament called the Alliance of Patriots of Georgia, who, again, use a lot of uh, Orthodox Christian symbology and slogans and so on, and have gained support amongst rural areas in particular. And there are also uh, another prominent one is the Georgian March, which began life as a street movement and then developed into a fully fledged political party before the most recent elections uh, in the autumn. So these groups, they're not hugely popular but they tap into some of these discourses that seem to be floating around in society and then they turn up the volume somewhat and they've gained some support amongst uh, certain sectors of the society by doing this. Yeah, and I think it's fairly obvious that Georgia wants to become 
European, if you look at even just the sports teams, for example, the the rugby team are trying to get involved in the Six Nations. The football team, Ireland, have, have played Georgia about fifty times in the last ten years. So that 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 bit is clear. In terms of the Orthodox Church, is that the same one that would have been involved in Russia and sort of the Church of the State uh, during the Soviet Union? Well, this is this is kind of interesting because it's actually its own. It is it is related, but it has its own. Um, Kind of branch, if you like. So there are some um, suggestions that this is a way that uh, Russia connects with Georgia based on this idea of shared Orthodox values. But the Georgian Orthodox Church itself is independent from the one in Russia. Um, it's a little bit different in my case because I, I compare the situation in Georgia with Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, for instance, has, has pushed itself away from Moscow. Uh, under the, the presidency of Petro Poroshenko, he was really strongly pushing for this uh, autocephaly of the, the Ukrainian church. Whereas in Georgia, they, they technically already have some independence from Moscow, but it, it's, it's easy to see, at least in the topics they talk about and the, the values that they share, that there is this connection that, that binds them to what we see in Russia, I think, as well. So... The football side of things and how all this ties together. One of the main things that I learned in the last few weeks from this is that football is often a mirror to what's happening in society, but it's also a, a perfect breeding ground for uh, extreme right wing or extreme left wing or extreme views in general when it comes to um, young men who want to be part of a group. And that's certainly the case in Italy when it comes to the ultras and in, in Croatia as well, when it comes to the rise of fascism, is that the case in Georgia as well? I think it's hard to say. I mean, I think in Georgia, um, football is not on the same scale as Italy or, or something like this. Um, it, it's a it's a popular sport, but I don't think that it, it's it, in terms of going to the games it is anywhere near as popular as these other countries. Um, I think, but like anywhere, as you mentioned, the national team is is obviously very well followed and they were almost, they managed to almost qualify for Euro 2020. They were very unlucky recently. They lost uh, against, um, I think it was North Macedonia in a playoff. And um, so the, the whole country was behind them. Um, but I think in particular in the national team, there is this obviously sense of representing the country on the international scene. And so this is why I think in this case, it became a real... Um, a point of contention in terms of these competing understandings of what Georgian national identity is. And I mean, actually, I would say in the case of, of Guram Kasha, because we had this fierce reaction from the far right, where they tried to get people to boycott the game and they, you know, they said he shouldn't represent the national team and so on. We actually got a response from more liberal minded people in Georgia who came to the match uh, against Latvia during that uh, qualifying campaign and brought LGBT flags and things like this. And actually he, he kind of gained a lot of support. So although it's not maybe the, the nicest way that it came about because the far right attacked him, we got this response from a, an element of the society that said, actually, that's not okay. We support him and we support some of these values that he's trying to defend. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that Gurum Kashia situation actually, because if, um, I'm sure there are people out there that aren't, aware of what happened so he was playing in the netherlands at the time and he was captain of the air divisa team that he was playing for and he wore a captain's airband that had the rainbow flag lgbtq uh, flag uh, promoting the uh, rights of lgbt the lgbtq community and the backlash in georgia was essentially from these far-right um groups condemning him and also boycotting the team yeah, that's right. So it was part of an initiative where I think all the captains in the Eredivisie that day wore the LGBT armband in support of LGBT rights and inclusivity in football in general. And almost immediately, there were some online hate campaigns. There was a lot of um, yeah, far-right parties and members of far-right parties who spoke out against him um, along these grounds, saying basically that this was, uh, you know, he was being corrupted by, by people in the West and that this was not something that they believed was consistent with the idea of, of Georgian values. Um, so, I mean, he was under quite a lot of pressure 
because as I mentioned, within the society, in order to stand up for LGBT values, you have to be fairly brave. I think in Georgia, it's not something that um, you know goes without without notice. Um, but he he didn't back down to to these attacks. He he stood his ground, and um, he, he's he's actually spoken out about it more recently. I think I think it seemed like he he kind of was reluctant to make a firm stand about it being purely for LGBT rights, and he said a lot of things about inclusivity in general but recently he was featured in a, a movie a documentary that, that UEFA made called Outraged where he tells a little bit more about the story and he's now chosen uh, you know with the the benefit of hindsight to talk a little bit more about the, the feelings he, he had and why he chose to to, to to act in the way that he did and, and it's worth checking out if uh, if you haven't seen it already. And am I right in saying this went the whole way to parliament in Georgia at the time? Um, it, not necessarily go the whole way to Parliament, but certainly met, like people who were affiliated with um, a party in Parliament, the Alliance of Patriots of Georgia, made public statements about this. Um, and eventually, this uh, this the one guy who who spoke about it. Um, he said that he was going to take personal action to stop Kasia from playing for the national team. And eventually, he was taken to court and kind of backtracked a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it, it kind of I think the story in general is has become symbolic of of this struggle, and it kind of comes up again and again as an example of of this fault line between uh, Western values and Georgian values. Yeah. So uh, before we finish up, then Georgia is obviously a, a ways away from here, and obviously so is Estonia. But one of the things that comes with being a European Union member, and I suppose that's one of the points of contention now for members of the right-wing community, is the entrance of people into the country from other countries. Um, how open is Georgia to people coming in and enjoying their place? Because I know Georgia is obviously a gorgeous country to look at um, in terms of that, but how welcoming is it? Uh, from my personal experience, one of the most welcoming places I've ever been to. Uh, very hospitable, um, amazing people, very proud of their, their hospitality, amazing food, amazing wine. Um, but like everywhere these days, I think that when these questions of national identity are raised and when political actors uh, on the far right accentuate them, they find these kind of scapegoats to explain certain problems that are happening in the country. Um, so uh, this group that I mentioned, George and March, who were one of the leaders uh, in the uh, hate campaigns against Guram Kasha, they formed uh, by organizing a, a street march against immigration initially. And the, the street that they chose to march down is, is in the center of Tbilisi, and it's a street named after a Georgian national hero called David the Builder. Um, but on that street nowadays, there are lots of uh, shops, restaurants owned by people from the Middle East, people from other countries. And so this, again, they've, this is a very small number of people within Tbilisi, but mm-hmm. they've kind of taken this and amplified it to say, oh, this is a problem with immigration. This is a problem and it's a threat to our, our Georgianness and our Georgian identity. So, but yeah, I mean, as a country, I, I would say very welcoming, very hospitable, amazing place to go. And, and yeah. And this is probably too broad of a question, but since we're on the topic of it, of the rise across Europe, why do you think that is, and are you worried about it? Um, <laughs> two huge questions. I mm. mean, I think again, there's lot, there's lots of different factors. I think each each country has its own uh, unique circumstances that create this situation where there's a demand for for far right and right wing uh, populists uh, and and other political actors. Um, I think a lot of it is is to do with um, I guess this kind of feeling of, I mean, we, we live in an environment now where these issues can be amplified on social media, where people can blame, um, you know, immigration or things like this for the problems that, that we face. Um, but I mean, to be honest, in general, this, this is a golden question that the Fatigue Project, which I'm part of, and my own research tries to, to add something to the, to the, the understanding of. Um, but in, it's hard to say in general why. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm worried about it, yeah, I think so. I think it is it is worrying to see that that these ideas are becoming more and more attractive to people. 
it's worrying when I see that young people are attracted to these ideas because it, it, it just seems quite worrying about the fact that maybe things won't get better in the future. Um, but as I mentioned in the, in the case of, of Georgia as well, when we have these situations where there are extreme threats from the far right, we can also see a response from uh, people who, who don't agree with them. And I think that this is also the case in Poland recently with the women's strike. So I think, although it's, it's not nice to see the rise of these forces, I hope in some way it can help to, to show that there is an equal and opposite reaction to that in these, in not just in Central and Eastern Europe, but also in, in Western Europe as well. Yeah, 100%. Michael Cole, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, no problem. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Owen J. Brown from Pure Fitba. Owen, how are you getting on? I'm very well, Endo. Thanks. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. So we're nearing the end of a bit of a weird season in Scottish football. We'll talk a little bit about that mm. a little later on and about Celtic and about Rangers and maybe about the approaching Euros that is potentially not going to happen in certain countries, but Scotland are involved and that's all that matters. So, but before we get into <laughs> that, pure Fitba, I was practicing my pronunciations because my Scottish brethren would uh, give out to me otherwise, but how did it come about? What is it? Tell us a little bit about it and sure. uh, what you, what you guys do. Absolutely. Enda. Um, so pure Fitba, I guess would be, football content which aims as its kind of guiding principles to be unbiased in depth and Scottish um, so kind of a lack of bias attempting to always be objective critical without being hateful appreciative and kind of enthusiastic about the game without being sycophantic and I think quite a wide range of Scottish football fans really appreciate that we try and be in depth doing research really kind of digging into the detail but hopefully being still quite concise and fun, whether that's match analysis or discussion of transfer targets or having maybe a level of knowledge that I think people might feel they don't get from maybe some of the more traditional or mainstream sections of football mm -hmm. media in Scotland. And finally, kind of in terms of principles, we're Scottish. So hopefully in a way that isn't parochial or self-obsessed, but in a way that kind of respects and focuses on our game, but also has a kind of outward looking eye. You know, there's no reason in my view that a kind of Scottish brand shouldn't be commenting on events and matches in European or world football too, rather than our content in Scotland of that sort essentially coming from England. Um, and I, I kind of got involved about three years ago when a, a friend and former colleague, Gavin Miller, was setting it up. And initially it was just a website with articles and I tended to be the editor for that. Plus there was a Twitter account that Gavin ran. Um, then we added a podcast about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago. And since then, the kind of social media side of things has grown quite extensively. We've added more podcast shows. Um, we've added some live video content, including a kind of pure goal show on a Twitch uh, Saturday afternoon thing. And lots of kind of pretty cool opportunities have come about as a result. You know, Gavin's now doing recruitment work within the game. And I've commentated for the SFA on a Scotland Under-21 match, just as kind of examples. And it's been really nice kind of seeing the audience uh, grow and interact with us and seeing some of them create their own content um, and for us to be able to grow the kind of team at Pure Football and, and for me also, I guess, trying not to be sycophantic here, but just seeing the kind of general rise of other smart kind of non-traditional football media content, such as like your own work with, for example, the Huddle Breakdown. Mm. So yeah, that, that's kind of Pure Football and how it came about and where we are now. Yeah, Enda. yeah um, Unbiased and Scottish is not something mm. that you would generally put two and two together because like many big leagues and especially leagues that are dominated by big teams, you're going to have media that's going to be covering it and you're going to have the fans from the two big clubs saying that they're biased against you, regardless of whether you'd, you'd have Celtic and Rangers fans saying that the media is biased against both of them. Well, it, it just can't be that like that. How, how do you find separating that? Because Celtic and Rangers obviously have two of the biggest most intense and most online active fan bases in probably world football as well. Yeah, I think it's difficult. You're absolutely right, Enda, that, you know, both of those groups of people would feel at certain times that, um, you know, there's bias against them. And, and, you know, who am I to say how somebody should feel? I think you've just got to really be objective, you know, in yourself and be confident about your reasons for feeling certain things. And, um, 
really make sure that you kind of can be that kind of balanced view by being balanced. I think also people appreciate that being balanced doesn't mean not being critical. And again, I think that helps, you know, if you can kind of show that if there's issues or flaws in either club, um, it's not just about kind of shying away from it and kind of, you know, I think sometimes maybe when people are trying to do some content in Scottish football out of fear that either Celtic or Rangers fans will see them as biased, they maybe shy away from it and kind of don't kind of just offer their opinions. I think if you offer your opinions and they're balanced and in-depth and there's, you know, knowledge behind them, I think hopefully um, most kind of rational Celtic Rangers fans, and I do believe there are plenty of those on either side, um, will probably, um, you know, give you your dues. You know, yeah. that's the hope anyway. Yeah, the, the problem with, I think, a lot of the traditional media and why I suppose the, the more intense supporters are moving away from it is because at times it feels like they're poking the bear, like they're poking it yeah. purposely in order to get the response sure. that they want. And I, I suppose that brings me on to my next point about Scottish football and covering it. Obviously, mm. Celtic and Rangers are the moneymakers, and that's why they're so powerful within the league and why there was potential for them to move away. How do you find covering all of Scottish football as opposed to just them two? Because obviously they're going to bring in the money. Obviously they're going to bring in the clicks. But you, if you're covering Scottish football, you need to cover the whole thing. Sure. I, th I think what we've found at Pure Football is that um, it hasn't necessarily been the case for us that our coverage of Celtic or Rangers gets more um, you know, clicks or views or listens or whatever than the other stuff. Um, and I think that's partly because we would respect the fact that there's a wide range of very professional fan-led media now for both of those teams that basically gives um, you know what those fans would want. Um, and I think that's where the clicks would be for that kind of stuff. We wouldn't kind of go chasing those kind of clicks or, or listens or whatever. Um, and plus, it's just not, we, we want it to be fun for us. We want to put out the kind of content we want. Um, so that's that's kind of first aspect to that, that we would say, don't don't chase the clicks, do what you want to do um, and respect the fact that probably the fans will go to the source that they want. And also that, you know, a certain segment of the audience will probably come to us for the fact that we are kind of balanced and, and don't hunt those things. So, you know, um, in terms of covering the game itself um, and its kind of intensity and, you know, you, you and I spoke about the fact that there's kind of a lot of crazy stories. I was thinking about that earlier um, today and I think sometimes, well, sometimes I think, well, the world is full of weird characters and football is just a kind of intense tribal type of thing. So surely people in every single country think that their football um, is particularly intense and particularly crazy. And then I worry, do we in Scotland focus on that aspect of things out of some sort of inferiority complex about our football? Like, yeah, okay, some of the match action isn't that great, but look at all this daft stuff that happens. But then I was thinking about it more about the kind of actual specific kind of stories and people and instance and just, yeah, these things are hilarious and ridiculous. And there can be a balance of respecting and enjoying the actual football, but also noting all the crazy stories. I mean, just yeah. looking over the last few months, you've got um, at the start of March, Motherwell manager Graham Alexander kind of sounding like a, I don't know, a UK government cabinet minister in his post-match interview as he responded to the same question about his own setting off three times in a row with the same non-answer. And then in February, you've got Hamilton Ackies dispensing with the services of a co-commentator they'd hired for their pay-per-view TV after he said on air that he'd been delayed coming back to analyse the second half because, in his words, he'd had to go and squeeze out a jobby at halftime. Um, in January, of course, you know, Celtic in Dubai, and we'll, we'll kind of quickly gloss over that one, but that was quite a story. And then before that, in December, we had George Galloway travelling up to Scotland from England, deliberately breaking travel restrictions to go to a Queen of the South match at a time when fans weren't allowed in the ground. So that, that's just a tiny handful of things in a very mm. small period of time. And I think, yeah, it's all part of the charm of the game here. And I guess for me being cynical and rational about it, I guess it provides quite a lot of content for podcasts and pure football, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, the Irish League would be quite like that as well, League of Ireland. And mm. you're you're talking another step down in, in quality, I suppose, in the, in the thing. But there's so many bizarre hilarious brilliant stories that come from the league that it, it, it makes it it makes it really entertaining for the fans and i mean like there's i i i'm gonna be honest i've sort of fell out of scottish football for a while but i've gotten really into it over the last couple of years again 
and there's something brilliant about it compared to watching the Premier League. It's completely different to watching the Premier League because the Premier League's so serious and everything's so shiny and perfect and corporate. Mm. Whereas I think that Scottish football, maybe down to the fact that it hasn't been taken over by conglomerate companies, mm. and that that is to its detriment on the world stage in terms of European qualifications or whatever, but it has maintained the sort of magic of the early 2000s to late noughties as well compared to the Premier League. Sure. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. That level of authenticity and maybe the closeness between the the players and the fans that maybe doesn't exist in the, you know, the likes of the English Premier League. I agree, Enda, yeah. In terms of the stats and one of the reasons I got in touch with you was because you had liked a couple of things on the Huddle Breakdown, the podcast that I do mm. um, with Alan Morrison and Jico James. You guys do a lot of that as well, a lot of in-depth analysis and uh, that kind of work in pure football as well. How did you get into that? Yeah, well, I absolutely love the stuff you're doing at Huddle Breakdown. It's really great to watch and listen to really kind of detailed uh, in-depth analysis. I guess in terms of how I kind of got into that side of things, I think I'm just the sort of person that maybe values having more and better information, particularly when I'm making decisions. And that's true in my day job. It's probably true in my personal life, maybe to the frustration of my wife that, you know, when she's maybe suggesting we do or buy something, I immediately fire off 10 questions. You know, how would this work? Have you considered a knock-on effect to this? What would happen if blah, blah. And, and ultimately, I guess my view on it end is just that stats, advanced stats data, it's all just information and analytics is just kind of ensuring that it's better information than what you had previously or what your competitors might have. And then being able to make informed, smarter decisions as a result and maybe in football, giving yourself a competitive advantage. And that's that's kind of my, my general you know view on it. And that's maybe why it's, it's attractive to me um, in terms of me kind of getting into advanced football stats or football analytics. I think, as with a lot of people, um, the football manager game probably started that off for me a little bit a long time ago. So I'd, I'd imagine, thinking back, I was probably questioning the benefits of things like assists in a game, you know, as a piece of information, given that what an assist is can vary so much from instance to instance. You know, you could be setting somebody up for a tap-in or, or you could just have passed it off 40 yards out and then they've gone on an amazing dribble and then scored themselves. So, you know, I was thinking, how does this reward the guy who set up the, the chance as well, if the chance is missed and, and so on and um, I remember football manager had a metric of key passes quite early on um, so kind of got into that and then I think I was trying to compare players in the game um, by breaking things down per 90 minutes and that kind of helped me think about that and then I was maybe thinking well actually there's also a benefit to people being available and playing a lot of minutes so you know just breaking it down per 90 doesn't necessarily give you all the answers and then these things led me on to thinking about expected assists and all that kind of stuff and then in, um, I think it would have been January 2018, um, I was, or December, January 2018, I was working a job that meant I didn't really have any time off around Christmas, and um, but my wife did. Um, so she was away um, seeing our parents um, for Christmas for a couple of weeks, and I had at the same time got hold of some Scottish Premiership data. So I had a bit of time on my hands, basically. I had to play around with the data, made some radars, did some writing and stuff. And then that led on to doing some bits and pieces at, at Pure Football kind of on that side of things. Then um, in the summer of 2018, I pitched Statsbomb an article um, about Andres Iniesta, one of my kind of favourite players of all time. But Spain were going to the Russian World Cup and I kind of felt, you know, that there was going to be some problems for Spain in that competition with maybe the reliance on players like him who were maybe hitting a decline. And that article was well received. I then went on to write a few more things for them over the next 18 months or so. And as a result of doing those articles, as well as getting paid for them, the big bonus for me was I got access to their sort of toolkit, you know, their kind of um, dashboard and advanced data on players and teams, which is just really nice to mm -hmm. play around with. Um, so I, I guess, you know, to kind of uh, close off there, I don't really have the mind or the interest to learn to do things like code or like build models or anything like that my interest is more about analyzing information asking questions trying to explain complex things to people spotting trends finding out root causes thinking about solutions that that's the kind of reason that i like stats and data not not mm. because it's data or not because it's stats but because it's information you know and it can help you 
uh, improve, I guess. Yeah, and when I started the Huddle Breakdown, I had no idea about advanced stats. I I was actually quite on the cynical side of things in terms of you watch football with your eyes and no more. But since I've started it, I've learned a lot more about the data analytics and the stats involved and what they mean and understanding them. And I think the key thing to point out is that they're merely a means to understand what you're actually seeing with your own eyes. And I think people, maybe it's it's not quite um, to the extent now where the lay person knows and understands them to, but once you are able to separate that idea that the data is what is just a measurement of what you're seeing, as opposed to telling you, you what you're seeing is wrong. Um, and I think I, I've brought that into some of my other shows that I do talking about football. And I found it hugely helpful in terms of maybe getting rid of some ideas that I actually did have that are disproving some things that I actually yep. had mis- misjudged when I was watching football or even just proving what I'm seeing with my own eyes. And I suppose confirmation bias does come into it. But at the same time, if you're able to put uh, an actual fact and uh, analysis to a point you're trying to make, I think it holds a lot more water. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. And uh, I think um, one of the things you mentioned there about having one of your thoughts um, disproved by the data in a way is is quite a useful thing for us all to kind of experience, you know, to get that sense of, well, actually the way I was thinking about things might not be right. So it can be useful from that perspective. And I think, you know, um, th- this kind of comparison of uh, football data as being some sort of... Um, insufficient answer to things and just watching the games being an answer i've stood alongside people who've watched games and they don't know what they're watching um you know that you know you've i'm sure we've all been in a pub mm. next to somebody watching the exact same game as us and you know he's shouting stuff at the screen at this particular player and, he, and he's completely at least in our view um wrong about things so th- there's no way that you know that um anyone kind of frame of looking at things is the kind of be all and end all you know but I, I do think as you said that it's information right and it, the more and better information that you have the more it can help you hopefully understand things but um these individual stats they're not some sort of silver bullet you know mm-hmm. knowing the xg of something isn't an answer to football it's just a very very small part of football and i think also for maybe practitioners or people who try and get other people interested in stats and things like that. It's getting boring having to enter into arguments and stuff or, or kind of, you know, I, I, to an extent, I'm, I'm not invested in trying to, you know, win an argument that people should care about these things anymore. It's just information. You choose in life what information you want to be able to, you know, kind of do whatever it is you want. Um, if I can use football stats to try and help me improve my understanding of a game, and hopefully maybe help some teams win games and stuff like that. I'm happy with that, you know, but yeah, I, I guess what we're maybe leaning to there is maybe there's some downsides. And and I would say there, there are still some downsides in terms of stats. I, I'll, I'll go through maybe a couple of things. So one thing I would say is that unless you're collecting the data yourself, I think you're largely influenced by what the data providers whose data you have access to have deemed as being worthwhile of collecting or presenting publicly. So what I mean by that is that could maybe lead, for example, to a bit of an obsession with expected goals because they're the kind of metric that's out there that's kind of public. There's a lot of other stuff that happens in a football match that's potentially just as interesting or valuable to know about as expected goals. Um, The other thing is that at the moment we're seeing, I would say, quite a lot of pretty scatter graphs on Twitter with kind of two metrics presented, for example, let's say progressive passes and progressive runs. But, you know, they just, I just want to fling, you you don't want to get into, it's good to see people creating content and you want to encourage people to kind of grow and stuff. And I I don't particularly want to use my Twitter to kind of call out things or anything like that, you know. Um, But what I would say uh, at times with those things is, um, you know, are you just trying to, I don't know, get internet points for how the stuff looks or propagandize a particular player. Um, You know, why are you using those two metrics? Is it just because those are the ones that Scout have? Um, What do those metrics even mean? Like, what is a progressive pass? Do you agree with the definition of progressive pass? 
why does one that's 25 yards long matter and not one that's 24 yards mm-hmm. if that's the the measurement of it did you watch the passes what do you really think of them um how much does the team that the person is playing for contribute to the fact that they make loads of those types of passes i mean obviously you're going to make more of those if you play for Celtic than if you play for Hamilton Ackies or whatever, you know? So, and, and again, the, the, the kind of, the downside there that I'm seeing would bring me back to just what's the purpose of this? To me, the purpose of analytics is to get better information that would give a team a competitive advantage. If you want to use it for internet kind of stuff and so on, that's fine, f- fair enough. That's where a lot of people get a lot of starts from things. But I think that we maybe should be more comfortable at throwing rocks and stuff and maybe asking questions each other. And the other thing I would say around that is that, again, data is just information. So you can see from the rocks I'm kind of throwing at it that maybe the the skill of the person analyzing and using the information is important. Mm -hmm. And the other kind of final uh, potential downside of stats that I just want to mention is that I think we're maybe going to get to a point where clubs just think, oh, well, we use data. That must mean that we're smart and doing things well. But I think like any information, in the wrong hands it can be used poorly or even harm, harmfully so what i'm thinking about and worrying about now is like players getting in trouble for their gps running data being lower than it should be or young players let's say there's a player on loan from celtic um at a, let's say hamilton Ackies. they don't have any of the ball but let's say the loan manager at celtic has set a, a data kpi of you know our players should be getting this number of shots per 90 minutes and then he doesn't make that and then you know maybe he fails out the game that's obviously a bit of a hyperbolic example but i just wonder will this lead to people in effect running football clubs like bad call centers basically where yeah. they're just kind of looking at numbers and, and not the context so that's that's some of my fears about stats and the downside but again it's just information you know yeah i'd, I'd also add the human aspect to it as well because obviously i think the key point is here that stats are not the bl all and end all they don't tell the full story all of the time um like for example um say shane duffy and his personal issues this year that can't be that can't be explained away by stats or um but it does add context to it and say for example a player's pick he's carrying a knock and he doesn't play as well as you might the, the data might reflect that but you're also you need to take all of these stats like you like you said it, it it depends on the people who are analyzing these stats and take what they're taking into consideration but you do have to consider the, the human aspect of, of things as well and i think that's probably one of the things that people think that stats or statistics statisticians don't do um when they're when they're considering them let's talk about the football this year then okay because as you mentioned uh, the it has been a bit of a, a wild season in, in terms of SPFL, which is saying a lot. Celtic going for the ten in a row, and twenty three points behind Rangers after uh, what a couple of months of football played and a couple of more left. Neil Lennon has resigned after a lot of pressure. We'll start from the very beginning, and probably a very tough question for you to answer: What in God's name happened Celtic this year? Yeah, um, a, a big mess of lots of different issues, I would say. And uh, so I, I'm not too surprised at the way that the season has played out um, for Celtic. I, I guess, you know, it's easy to say that. It sounds like, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and so on. But I did always think that Lennon was not an ideal appointment from Cel- for Celtic from when it happened in this period. I think it was an appointment um, rooted in sentimentality and maybe a belief in, I guess, what some might term intangible kind of personal characteristics. Though I would say that those personal kind of leadership qualities are, they're not intangible. They can just maybe be tough to assess from the outside. But what I would also say is that I was even back then a wee bit skeptical about Lennon's possession of particularly positive qualities in terms of those things like man management, communication, leadership, development of players and stuff like that. And I think, you know, also at a time when, the game is changing um, both on and off the park quicker than ever. So it was always a wee bit concerned for Celtic about that appointment and how that might play out. And I think for Celtic, in addition to that um, and the probable tactical and player development issues that I felt the appointment of Lennon might lead to, felt to me like Celtic's recruitment strategy is very incoherent. Um, so players coming in with a 
a lack of clarity as to who really wanted them. Um, players being picked um, for transfer in with a certain formation or system in mind, and then maybe a switch away from that setup. Um, the continued reliance upon the loan market in a way that almost no other dominant team in a comparable league in Europe is. And I think also the lack of a plan around how to retain assets and make sure that you sell them on at the right, most beneficial time for the club. I'm thinking like Frimpong leaving kind of semi-suddenly and also the prospect of Ayer and Edward and so on this Mm -hmm. summer. Um, Anyway, all those things sort of at the same time as Rangers maybe sort of actually figuring out a a way and a need to handle um, those kind of things and actually having themselves a bit more of a coherent structure, both in terms of uh, on the pitch style of play and recruitment and kind of club set up um, to support that off the pitch. So that kind of, you know, collision of um, a sort of set of bad choices and a bit of a kind of regression and decline and stagnation at Celtic, along with um, a bounce forward for Rangers, um, you know, kind of has, in my view, kind of contributed to the, mm. the way things have played out. I haven't watched much of Rangers this year, to be quite mm. honest, mainly because, you know, sometimes they're playing the same time, sometimes they're they're playing the same day as Celtic are. Have they improved to the extent where it should be this big of a gap? Because it seems like, well, Stephen Gerrard, by all accounts, could have been sacked last season if the season wasn't called short. And it just seems like if Celtic played to their the best of their ability then they still would have been slightly ahead of Rangers, but maybe I'm misconstruing that. Yeah, I, I think you are. Um, I, I think that the idea that Gerard would have been sacked last season, I, I think that's really um, not true. I think that's kind of maybe rooted in unrealistic expectations that maybe some fringe Rangers supporters would have that, you know, he must win a trophy. Um, and and I, I, that's things that's leveled at, clubs all over the world, you know, I'm thinking here of, you know, Pochettino at Spurs and so on, not to compare Gerrard and Rangers to them, but there can be progress, incremental progress without necessarily the sign of, you know, a trophy. Mm-hmm. Winning a League Cup to me is inferior to, you know, putting plans together and having the right recruitment. That means that potentially the next season you would win the league. So I think within Rangers, there would be a lot more uh, rationality about, you know, Gerard's achievements over the course of last season and so on. Um, I, I think a lot of the idea that he was maybe in danger of losing his job would be um, pushed by the lunatic fringe of Rangers fans that have too high expectations and maybe, you know, some Celtic fans with a, a little bit of kind of, you know, trolling or, or kind of, you know, provocative kind of stuff. Mm. Um, in, in terms of how they've done, yeah, I think, I mean, the measure for me really, again, is about kind of incremental process progress and seeing the process that results in, you know, what's happening. So I think, you know, Gerard has set up a style of play and a system that is clear. Everybody knows what they're doing. It doesn't change much from week to week, which again, I think is quite a distinction from how things have been at Celtic throughout the season where, you know, there's maybe a little bit of lack of clarity um, about whether it'll be a, a 3-5-2, a 4-4-2 diamond, 4-2-3-1 throughout the season even to the extent that when you see the team line up on a Saturday, you might not necessarily be sure as a fan, you know, what, what the system is. That's different at Rangers. And you can see that on a part two, you know, everybody appears to know their role. And it's quite a, the system they're playing is maybe a system that doesn't rely so much on singular individual quality of players. You know, it's, it's functional. And I don't mean that as a kind of uh, disrespect, um, you know, there's an idea of how they want to play, how they want to make chances, and and it's effective, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've also been able to translate that to Europe. You know, I think that's been another positive for Gerard and Rangers, where maybe thinking back to Brendan Rodgers now, a difficulty was for Brendan Rodgers was how do you translate this possession-heavy style that is that works superbly in the Scottish Premiership and dominates teams, but when you go and have to face an RB Salzburg or Valencia or whatever in Europe, you know, how, how do you flip that around to win? Whereas for Gerard, I think the style they've picked allows them to um, not have to adapt so much in Europe and that's maybe how they've progressed. So I, I say all that to say that, yeah, I think he's done very well yeah. and the, the way that they've set up um, both off the pitch and on the pitch 
merits where they are, but certainly Celtic could be a lot closer, um, you know, for, for the reasons that we spoke about earlier. Yeah, well, I, I think Rangers or even Celtic, I know Celtic didn't do well at all in Europe, and that's one of the failures of this season. Doing well in Europe is good for Scottish football as a whole, regardless of who you support because of mm. uh, what it does to the the UEFA rankings. So uh, in terms of <laughs> the functionality is quite a funny word to use because I think the last couple of weeks I've been saying to Juco James and Alan that function uh, functionality is what I would take at Celtic at the minute. I would take a functioning system that makes sense because that's something that Celtic didn't have at all this season under Neil Lennon. And hopefully they might get back to that under John Kennedy until the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of Celtic and their squad, so like you mentioned, Jeremy Frimpong is gone. There's a strong likelihood that Christopher Iyer will be gone at the end of the season. Cal McGregor's future is up in the air, as is Ryan Christie's. Alton Edward is almost 100% out of the club. And you, at the minute, I think for a lot of Celtic fans, they're staring into the abyss until a new manager comes along. What, what are your thoughts on the future of Celtic and what way they should go about it? I feel really concerned um, for Celtic. Um, maybe not the, the kind of best news, but I really think that the rebuild build and the restructure in the summer is going to be massive. Um, I think that there's just, you know, all over the pitch due to, like you said, these assets that may be leaving, but also the use of the loan system. It's going to be really unclear. I think it might be a depressed market in terms of buyers. So like if you are having to sell Odson Edward, will you get anywhere near the amount of money that really he's worth? Um, and it might be a slow-moving market as well. So not only will the fees be smaller, maybe you don't get bidders till right at the end of the transfer window, and then you're again in a, this potential situation of having to rely on the loan market and stuff like that to get people in quickly. Um, and beyond that, also positionally, it's it's not just like adding depth or fringe players. Potentially, there's a question mark over goalkeeper. You know, we don't really know what's going to happen with Barkas. I guess the hope, for me at least, looking at it objectively for Celtic, is that Kennedy takes this as an opportunity to integrate pieces for next season, you know, and kind of have people like Barkas, who potentially should be the goalkeeper for next season, back in. But then you've got like centre back where Julian was a very significant injury. Um, Obviously, you hope that he comes back as the same sort of player, but. It might be some time, you know, we don't know. Um, and, you know, you, you potentially only have Ayer then as your senior centre-back. Um, I would make Ayer captain and try and get him on an extension. That would be my strategy with him. I think you don't want to lose him and the other guys like Edward this summer if you can avoid it. And that's maybe the way you win him around. I don't think there's any way to win Edward around probably, you know, but Ayer maybe. You know, he's got a, a kind of linked to the city now right he's been here for a considerable amount of time he seems happy and so on so that would be one approach um but yeah right through the team there, there's loads of um kind of issues and beyond that as well obviously we don't know who the manager is going to be and it's going to maybe be a closed season pre-season for them so you know my view is that there's lots of names doing the rounds for Celtic um, in terms of manager um, but whoever it comes in, it might not be for a while. Um, they might be waiting to see, you know, does somebody in the English Championship get sacked at the end of the season, become available? Then you've got the Euros to contend with when people are maybe not available to negotiate. Players might want to wait and see what their future is. So it's all very squeezed, I think, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and I think it's going to be very difficult. And I think that if um, the, the worst thing about us for Celtic, I think, is that there's a hell of a lot of work to do, but if you don't get it right, it can impact for the next, you know, three to five seasons, potentially, you know, this is, uh, and maybe people might see that differently. I know that people, obviously Celtic fans would have a different view of the squad than I would. And I, I do think that there's a load of quality in it. You know, there's obviously great players who are capable of winning trophies, but it just seems like a very big job to me that all these things are kind of arriving at once. So yeah, tough, I think. Yeah, the, the loan system is an interesting one because, I mean, Celtic mm. have a, a bizarre, crazy amount of loans at the minute. Mm. And in terms of Scottish football as a whole and maybe focusing on Celtic, mm. are they being undercut in terms of transfers? Because my view would be that 13 million, yeah, that's fa- that's a decent enough price for Jeremy Fimpong, but mm. are, are you getting 20 million for him if you're playing in another European league? 
the likes of Virgil van Dijk, the fee that he went for, and then you look at what he went on to do. It just seems like for a club with the brand size of Celtic, they should be doing a lot better in terms of the players that they're selling. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, I think, yeah, we have to be realistic about it, that, you know, it is Scottish football. People are going to put a, uh, whatever the opposite of a premium would be on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, th- I think Celtic are doing reasonably well, um, or did seem to be, like, for example, with Tierney, at demanding what would seem to be, in my view, probably reasonable figures. You can't expect to get the same sort of money that a Premier League team in England is going to play pay another Premier League team yeah. um, for one of their players. There's no point comparing it to somebody like Aaron Wambasaka, for example, um, who's you know a, a young established Premier League fullback and, and so on. Um, so I don't know. It's hard hard to balance that out. There's not necessarily enough transfers that happen to really say um, definitively this isn't fair. We're not getting enough. Um, but yes, I would love for our clubs, not just Celtic, but other ones, to get um, better fees for the players. The thing I would level though at Celtic and. Um, I think they've done well with Tierney. Tierney was a really good example of you know developing a player and um, doing really well, and then maybe allowing him to go at the right time and getting a reasonable fee for him. With somebody like Frimpong, um, it's been a mess for him in terms of his development and trying to make the most of that asset. Um, you know, he's he's been in and out of the team. He's been played at right wing. He's been played at right wing back. He's been played at right back. Um, he um, left in January, kind of, you know, suddenly. So you're not playing the game well enough there. You know, you've got to develop him. When he came in the first few games, I know he's got deficiencies and he's a lot to learn, but I was thinking, look, potentially, could this guy end up going for more than Tierney, you know, if, with the right kind of developments on? He's got the pedigree and obviously he's gone to a place. At, there's, there's suitors, right? You know, Bayer Leverkusen is a great place to go to. But you need to invest the time. You need to develop the people. You need to then sell them at the right time when you can create some sort of auction. Mm-hmm. And I would bring that back to the likes of Ayer, for example, and Edward. So Chris Ayer, um, I mean, just as a very basic example, Chris Ayer is not left-footed. He's not a left-sided centre-back, but he always plays left-sided centre-back at Celtic to accommodate the fact that the recruitment is messy and poor, and they've not really bought in somebody for that position, but because he's the most capable and experienced centre-back and, and is probably happy to do whatever the manager wants, he's always the guy that moves over there. Or similarly, he gets moved out to right-back in some European games for whatever idea. You know, these things. And I understand, obviously, the team's got to come first and results of you know are important and, and you know, you've got to do what you can to win football matches. But you've also get, got to get your hat on in terms of, you know, what are we doing to develop these people to make sure that when we sell them, which is inevitable, you know, he's not going to be a, you know, a player like I is not going to be at Celtic for 15 years. How are we maximising the player and then what we get for them? So, yeah. you know, that, that would be something I would level back at Celtic. Um, not getting enough, but they could do more. Yeah, and I think that comes into who they get in and the director of football and the transfer policy mm-hmm. and how all of this ties together in a, a workable system that, the manager, director of football, the coaches are all getting the best out of the players that they have in order to make everything a success. And one of the reasons that it hasn't really worked out for Celtic this year is that they have all the, they're selling the players, but they're not replacing them. They're replacing them with loans. And yeah. like Ballangali was seen as the replacement for Tierney, but then that went kaput and they had nobody there. Jeremy Frimpong is gone. They have nobody there. So they had to get John Joe Kenny in on loan, Lax also on loan. Shane Duffy was a, a loanee that's coming in to fill a position that they they didn't have enough depth in because they didn't recruit properly. So that all needs to play all as one workable system for it to be successful. And that's probably why it hasn't worked out for Celtic this year. In terms of Scottish football as a whole, I mentioned earlier, fantastic news, especially for an Irishman who wants someone to support at the Euros next year. <laughs> uh, Scotland are at the Euros this year, this year finally has come around <laughs> I, I i'd imagine you're absolutely buzzing to actually see scotland in a major tournament again i sure am yeah um i think it's uh, just fantastic to be there um really hope it does still go ahead and ideally in a situation where you know some fans can get together in some way to enjoy it um i think we should be really proud of qualifying i think that obviously it's been a long long time coming but we need to be realistic about that it's getting tougher and tougher, I think, to qualify for international tournaments for countries like us. We don't have some sort of 
natural birthright to be there despite having been football nations for a, a while there's there's more countries now you know with the breakup of you know maybe the the balkan countries and so on and lots of other countries are getting better um in terms of their infrastructure their production of young players and so on so i think we should take pride in the fact that we've gone there um and also i think we should take pride in the fact that maybe the reasons that we've managed to get there are evident like it's not just luck um we've got a system a play in place we've got a manager who's you know capable um he's set up a kind of smaller kind of club type feel in terms of selection pool an, an issue for me i've always had with scotland is just handing out caps to too wide a field of players and, and it's just you know kind of there's a lack of continuity or maybe players not getting um the amount of caps they should have till an older age i'm thinking of people like cal mcgregor for instance you know you, you need to have these people these people who are going to be the key good players in and playing early and, and kind of building up that kind of team feel. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, just happy to be there and very hopeful that we don't get an absolute doing off England. <laughs> That's the main thing. Yeah, Steve, Steve Clark's an interesting one. And Scotland has a lot of similarities to Ireland in many ways um, in terms of the league structure and almost the lack of a, a youth league for youth teams to develop or that that sort of centralized system that the bigger countries can afford to put in place and can afford to put 10 years of their football aside steve clark as well a manager who i, I think scotland went through a run of managers there where it was the managers who would come in and be big names or at least men who had experience in scotland scottish football but steve clark is a completely different man in terms of He's a, a manager that understands systems. And I think that was really important for Scotland, especially with the whole Andy Robertson, Kieran Tierney, how do you get both them into the side at the same time as well? Um, yep. But aside from that, Cal McGregor is someone that I wanted to ask you about. Mm. He's been hit or miss for Celtic this year. I'd, I'd say mainly down to the position and mm. the role that he's asked to do for Celtic. What What's the role? What's his role at Scotland at the minute? Sure. Well, um, Scotland have tended to play, I guess you would maybe say it's a 5-2-3 a or, or like a 3-4-3 a three, three type system where McGregor would be one of the two central midfielders, um, often being the kind of left-sided central midfielder. And generally it's felt to me that he's maybe the one that's more tasked with um, being on the ball, you know, the build-up play, the kind of ball carrying, the creative stuff, while maybe the other part of that pivot is maybe Ryan Jack, who's maybe been more um, responsible for kind of winning the ball back and, you know, kind of turning it over and stuff like that. Um, and I think McGregor's done well. I think that um, the weight of expectation of what McGregor can do or what a midfielder, a central midfielder should do is to me a, a little bit unfair at times. You know, I mean, you, you can't kind of expect a central midfielder necessarily to be doing everything um you know people i think would expect him to be bursting forward i mean this for scotland generally and getting loads of assists or, or loads of goals but there's so much responsibility in that kind of system in terms of being the the central midfielder you know you've got to pick up the ball from the back three you've got to be ready to win the ball back you've got to hold your shape positionally to fill the space so I think people just need to be realistic um, about their expectations, um, both of him and both of that kind of position and role. I'm a big fan. Um, you know, I would put that front and centre that I really, really like him as a player. I think in terms of somebody that can find space, move into space, use the ball, keep the ball, play nice passes. That's the sort of player I really like. So, um, you know, this is one of my confirmation biases as we spoke about earlier. Mm. You know, I probably need some information some data to challenge me on him a wee bit um but i, I really like him um i think that hopefully the the games latterly in the qualification process particularly the game against serbia i would think that game really showed to people the level of player he is because against the team that have very good midfielders and and you know have um you know skilled players he was a key part of us keeping the ball and playing about and making smart passes and making them work and spread things. So, um, yeah, as much as expectations are massive of him, um, I, I, I think he's doing okay. I think he's doing fine. Um, just, you know, maybe we need to temper the expectations and not expect multiple assists in a game. Um, and, and just that 
the other thing I guess to consider is to think of it as a, a system. Like you said, you know, Steve Clark, it's a system game. The individual cogs, the eleven guys, they can do their job without seeming spectacular. The, the key is to kind of win the games and, and get through. And, and I think he's he's good at that. But it, it would obviously be lovely if you know he popped up in the Euros and got us a a lovely through ball for Griffiths to tuck away against England or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I love Cal McGregor. I think he's a fantastic player. And if you look at Celtic's team to bring it back to Celtic with a a, a spine of. Christopher Iyer, Cal McGregor, David Turnbull, and fair enough, Odson Edward may not be there, but for example, he is there. That's an incredibly gifted spine of a team that you yep. can build around in, in terms of the squad. So I, I hope I hope to see Cal McGregor back to his best for Celtic next next season, hopefully. And just to finish off on Scotland then, um, if you were to hazard a guess of how you're, you're going to do, or at least what are you hoping to do in the Euros? Where are you hoping to get to? Hmm. I was being very serious that one thing I want to avoid is being uh, embarrassed against England. I think England have got a phenomenal squad. So that's a thing I'm a wee bit scared about. Um, I think like the third place can potentially go through to the next round. So that's what I want. Um, I think it's realistic given the structure and also the fact that hopefully we have two games in Glasgow. Um, so maybe a bit of home support and lack of travel. That's what I want. Get to the knockouts. Um, that, that would make me happy. Well, if Ireland can do it at France in France and uh, almost beat the the French team that won the tournament, then I think Scotland will have a pretty good chance. Owen, thanks for joining me today. You've been brilliant with your time and really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Enda. I appreciate you having me. Great. Great.